Chapter Four of the Guns of Shiloh. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Guns of Shiloh by Joseph A. Altscheller. Chapter Four: The Flight in the Pass. The three halted their horses and stood for a minute or two on the very crest of the pass. The fierce wind out of the northwest blew directly in their faces, and both riders and horses alike were covered with snow. But Dick felt a wonderful thrill as he gazed upon the vast white wilderness. East and west, north and south, he saw the driving snow and the lofty peaks and ridges showing through it, white themselves. The towns below and the cabins that snuggled in the coves were completely hidden. They could see no sign of human life on slope or in the valley. Looks as wild as the Rockies, said the sergeant tersely. But you won't find any Injuns here to ambush you, said Red Blaze, though I don't make any guarantee against bushwhackers and guerrillas, who'll change sides as often as two or three times a day, if it'll suit their convenience. They could hide in the woods along the road and pick us off as easy as I'd shoot a squirrel out of a tree. They like to have our arms and our big coats. I tell you what, friends, a mighty civil war like ours gives a tremendous opportunity to bad men. They're all coming to the top. Every rascal in the mountains, and in the lowlands, too, I guess is out looking for plunder and wuss. You're right, Red Blaze, said the sergeant with emphasis, and it won't be stopped until the generals on both sides begin to hang and shoot the plunderers and murderers. But they can't catch them all, said Red Blaze. A Yankee general with a hundred thousand men will be out looking for what? Not for a gang of robbers, not by a jugful. He'll be looking for a rebel general with another hundred thousand men, and the rebel general with a hundred thousand men will be looking for that Yankee general with his hundred thousand. So there you are. And while they're looking for each other, and then fighting each other to a standstill, the robbers will be plundering and murdering. But don't you worry about being ambushed. I was just telling you what might happen, but wouldn't happen. We can go downhill fast now, and we'll soon be in Hubbard, which is on the other side of all that fallen snow. The road down the mountain was also better than the one by which they had ascended, and as the horses with their corked shoes were swift of foot, they made rapid progress. As they descended, the wind lowered fast, and there was much less snow. Red Blaze said it was probably not snowing in the valley at all. See that shining in the sun, he said. That's the tin covering on the steeple of the new church in Hubbard. The sun strikes squarely on it, and now I know I'm right about it not snowing down there. Wait till we turn round this big rock. Yes, that's Hubbard laying out in the valley without a drop of snow on her. It looks good, don't it, friends, with the smoke coming out of the chimneys? That little red house over thar is the railroad and telegraph station, and we'll go straight for it, cause we ain't got no time to waste. They emerged into the valley and rode rapidly for the station. Farmers on the outskirts and villagers looked wonderingly at them, but they didn't pause to answer questions. They galloped their tired mounts straight for the little red building which was the station. Dick sprang first from his horse, leaving it to stand at the door, ran inside. A telegraph instrument was clicking mournfully in the corner. A hot stove was in another corner, and sitting near it was a lad of about Dick's age clad in mountain jeans and lounging in an old cane-bottomed chair. 
but Dick's quick glance saw that the boy was bright of face and keen of eye. He promptly drew out his papers and said, I'm an aide from the Northern Regiment of Colonel Newcomb at Townsville. Here are duplicate dispatches, one set for the President of the United States and the other for the Secretary of War. They tell of a successful fight that we had last night with Southern troops, presumably the cavalrymen of Turner Ashby. I wish you to send them at once. He's speaking the exact truth, Jim, said Red Blaze, who had come in behind Dick, and I've brought him and the sergeant here over the mountains to tell about it. The boy sprang to his instrument, but he stopped a moment to ask one question. Did you really beat him off, he asked, as he looked up with shining eye. We certainly did, replied Dick. I'll send it faster than I ever sent anything before, said the boy. To think of me, Jim Johnson, sending a dispatch to Abraham Lincoln, telling of a victory. I reckon you're right, Jim. It's your chance, said Red Blaze. Jim bent over the instrument, which now began to click steadily and fast. You're to wait for answers, said Dick. The boy nodded, but his shining eyes remained bent over the instrument. Dick went to the door, brushed off the snow, came back, and sat down by the stove. Sergeant Whitley, who had tied the horses to the hitching posts, came in, pulling up an empty box, and sat down by him. Red Blaze slipped away unnoticed, but he came back very soon, and men and women came with him, bringing food and smoking coffee. There was enough for twenty. Red Blaze had spread among the villagers, every one of whom he knew, the news that the Union army had won a victory, nor had it suffered anything in the telling. Colonel Newcomb's regiment, by the most desperate feats of gallantry, had beaten off at least ten thousand Southerners, and the boy and the man in uniform, who were resting by the fire in the station, had been the greatest two heroes of a battle waged for a whole night. Curious eyes gazed at Dick and the sergeant, as they sat there by the stove. Dick himself, warm and relaxed, and the needs of his body satisfied, felt like going to sleep. But he watched the boy operator, who presently finished his two dispatches, and then lifted his head for the first time. They've gone straight into Washington, he said. We ought to get an answer soon. We'll wait here for it, said Dick. The three messengers were now thoroughly warmed at the stove. They had eaten heartily of the best the village could furnish, and a great feeling of comfort pervaded them. While they were waiting for the reply, that they hoped would come from Washington, Dick Mason and Sergeant Whitley went outside. No snow was falling in the valley, but off on the mountain crest they still saw the white veil blown by the wind. Red Blaze joined them, and was everywhere their guide and herald. He ascribed to them such deeds of skill and valor that they were compelled to call him the best romancer they had met in a long time. I suppose that if Mr. Warner were here, said the sergeant, he would reduce these statements to mathematics, ten percent fact and ninety percent fancy. Just about that, said Dick. Red Blaze came to them presently, bristling with news. A farmer from a hollow further to the west, he said, has just come in, and he says that a band of guerrillas is riding through the hills, about twenty of them, he said, led by a big dark fella, his face covered with a black beard. They've been lifting horses and taking other things, but they're strangers in these parts. Tom Sykes, who was held up by them and robbed of his horse, says that the rest of them call their leader Skelly. Tom seemed to think that maybe they come from somewhere in the Kentucky mountains. They call themselves a scouting party of the Southern Army. Dick started violently. Why, I know this man, Skelly, he said. 
he lives in the mountains to the eastward of my home in kentucky he organized a band at the beginning of the war but over there he said he was fighting for the north he'll be fighting for his own hand said the sergeant sternly but he can't play double all the time that sort of thing will bring a man to the end of a rope with clear air under his feet i'm glad you told me this said red blaze skelly might have come ridin in here claimin that he and his men was northern troops then when we wasn't suspectin might have held up the whole town i'll warn em there ain't a house here that hasn't got two or three rifles and shotguns in it and with the farmers from the valley joinin in hubbard could wipe out the whole gang tell them to be on guard all the time red blaze said whitley with strong emphasis in war you've got to watch 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 always know what the other fellow is doing if you can let's get back to the station said dick maybe we'll have an answer soon they found the young operator hanging over his instrument his eyes still shining he had been in that position ever since they left him and dick knew that his eagerness to get an answer from washington kept him there mind and body waiting for the tick of the key dick the sergeant and red blaze sat down by the stove again and rested there quietly for a quarter of an hour red blaze was thinking that it could be another cold ride back over the pass the sergeant although he was not sleepy closed his eyes and saw again the vast rolling plains the herds of buffalo spreading to the horizon and the bands of sioux and cheyennes galloping down their great war bonnets making splashes of color against the thin blue sky dick was thinking of pendleton the peaceful little town in kentucky that was his home and of his cousin harry kenton he did not know now where harry was and he did not even know whether he was dead or alive dick sighed a little and just at that moment the telegraph key began to click the answer is coming exclaimed the young operator excitedly and then he bent closer over the key to take it the three chairs straightened up and they too bent toward the key the boy wrote rapidly but the clicking did not go on long when it ceased he straightened up with his finished message in his hand his face was flushed and his eyes still shining he folded the paper and handed it to dick it's for you mr mason he said dick unfolded it and read aloud colonel john d newcomb congratulations on your success and fine management of your troops victory worth much to us read dispatch to regiment and continue westward to original destination a lincoln dick's face glowed and the sergeant's teeth came together with a little click of satisfaction when i saw that it was to be read to the regiment i thought it no harm to read it to the rest of you said dick as he refolded the precious dispatch and put it in his safest pocket now sergeant i think we ought to be off at full speed not a minute to waste said sergeant whitley their horses had been fed and rested well the three bade farewell to the young operator then to almost all of hubbard and proceeded in a trot for the pass they did not speak until they were on the first slope and then the sergeant looking up at the heights asked shall we have snow again on our return red blaze i hope not it's important for us to get back to townsville without any waste of time i hate to bring bad news replied red blaze but we'll sure have more snow see them clouds sailing up and always sailing up from the southwest and see that white mist round the highest peaks that's snow and it'll hit the pass 
just as it did when we was coming over but we've got this in favor of ourselves and our horses now the wind is on our backs they rode hard now dick had received the precious message from the president and it would be a proud moment for him when he put it in the hands of the colonel he did not wish that moment to be delayed several times he patted the pocket in which the paper lay as they ascended the wind increased in strength but being on their backs now it seemed to help them along they were soon high up on the slopes and then they naturally turned for a parting look at hubbard in the valley a twin to that of townsville it looked from afar neat and given up to peace but dick knew that it had been stirred deeply by the visit of his comrades and himself it seems he said that the war would pass by these little mountain nests but it don't said red blaze war i guess is like a mad and kickin mule hoofs lashin out everywhere and you can't tell what they're going to hit boys were making good time that wind on our backs fairly lifts us up the mountainside petty had all the easy familiarity of the backwoods he treated the boy and man who rode with him as comrades of at least a year's standing and they felt in return that he was one of them a man to be trusted they retained all the buoyancy which the receipt of the dispatch had given them and dick his heart beating high scarcely felt the wind and cold in another quarter of an hour we'll be at the top said petty then he added after a moment's pause if i'm not mistook we'll have company see that path leadin out of the west and runnin along the slope it comes into the main road two or three hundred yards further on and i think i can see the top of a horseman's head ridin in it what do you say sergeant i say you're right red blaze i plainly see the head of a big man wearing a fur cap and there are others behind him ridin in a single file what's your opinion mr mason the same as yours and red blazes i too can see the big man with the fur cap on his head and at least a dozen following behind do you think it likely red blaze that they'll reach the main road before we pass the mouth of the path a sudden thought had leaped up in dick's mind and it set his pulses to beating hard he remembered some earlier words of red blazes we'll go by before they reach the main road replied red blaze unless they make their horses travel a lot faster than they're traveling now then suppose we whip up a little said dick both red blaze and the sergeant gave him searching glances do you mean began whitley yes i mean it i know it that man in front wearing that fur cap is bill skelly he and his men made an attack upon the home of my uncle colonel kenton who is a southern leader in kentucky he and his band were northerners there but they'll be southerners here if it suits their purpose and it will surely suit their purpose to be southerners now said red blaze we three are riding mighty good horseflesh me and the sergeant have good rifles and pistols and you have good pistols and we all have good big overcoats this is a lonely mountainside with war flying all about us easy's the place and easy's the deed that is if we let em which we ain't going to do not by a long shot said sergeant whitley resting his rifle across the pommel of his saddle they've got to follow straight behind the ground is too rough for them to ride around us and flank us dick said nothing but his gauntleted hand moved down to the butt of one of his pistols his heart throbbed but he preserved the appearance of coolness he was fast becoming inured to danger owing to the slope 
They could not increase the speed of their horses greatly, but they were beyond the mouth of the path before they were seen by Skelly and his band. Then the big mountaineer uttered a great shout and began to wave his hand at them. The road curves here a little among the rocks, said the sergeant, who unconsciously took command. Suppose we stop, sheltered by the curve, and ask them what they want. The very thing to do, said Dick. Sass him, sergeant, sass him, said Red Blaze. They drew their horses back partially in the shadow of the rocky curve, but the sergeant was a little further forward than the others. Dick saw Skelly and a score of men emerge into the road and come rapidly toward them. They were a wild-looking crew, mounted on tough mountain ponies, all of them carrying loot, and all armed heavily. The sergeant threw up his rifle, and with a steady hand aimed straight at Skelly's heart. Halt! he cried sharply, and tell me who you are. The whole crew seemed to reel back except Skelly, who, though stopping his horse, remained in the center of the road. What do you mean? he cried. We're peaceful travelers. What business is it of yours who we are? Judging by your looks, you're not peaceful travelers at all. Besides, these ain't peaceful times, and we take the right to demand who you are. If you come on another foot, I'll shoot. The sergeant's tones were sharp with resolve. Your name, he continued. Ramsdell, David Ramsdell, replied the leader of the band. That's a lie, said Sergeant Whitley. Your name is Bill Skelly, and you're a mountaineer from eastern Kentucky, claiming to belong first to one side and then to the other as suits you. Who says so? exclaimed Skelly defiantly. The sergeant beckoned Dick, who rode forward a little. I do, said the boy in a loud, clear voice. My name is Dick Mason, and I live at Pendleton in Kentucky. I saw you more than once before the war, and I know that you tried to burn down the house of Colonel Kenton there and kill him and his friends. I'm on the other side, but I'm not for such things as that. Skelly distinctly saw Dick sitting on his horse in the pass, and he knew him well. Rage tore at his heart. Although on the other side, this boy, too, was a lowlander, and in a way a member of that vile Kenton brood. He hated him, too, because he belonged to those who had more of prosperity and education than himself. But Skelly was a man of resource and not a coward. You're right, he cried. I'm Bill Skelly, and we want your horses and arms. We need them in our business. Now just hop down and deliver. We're twenty to three. You come forward at your own risk, cried the sergeant, and Skelly, despite the numbers at his back, wavered. He saw that the man who held the rifle, aimed at his heart, had nerves of steel, and he didn't dare advance knowing that he would be shot at once from the saddle. A victory won by Skelly's men, with Skelly dead, was no victory at all to Skelly. The gorilla reined back his horse, and his men retreated with him. But the three knew well that it was no withdrawal. The mountaineers rode among some scrub that grew between the road and the cliff, and Whitley exclaimed to his two comrades, Come, boys, we must ride for it. It's our business to get back with the dispatches to Colonel Newcomb as soon as possible, and not let ourselves be delayed by this gang. That's certainly true, said Dick. Lead on, Mr. Petty, and we'll cross the mountain as fast as we can. Red Blaze started at once in a gallop, and Dick and the sergeant followed swiftly after. But Sergeant Whitley held his cocked rifle in his hand and cast many backward glances. A great shout came from Skelly and his band when they saw the three take to flight, and the sergeant's face grew grimmer as the sound reached his ears. 
Keep right in the middle of the road, boys, he said. We can't afford to have our horses slip. I'll hang back just a little and send in a bullet if they come too near. This rifle of mine carries pretty far, farther, I expect, than any of theirs. I'm something on the shoot myself, said Red Blaze. I love peace, but it hurts my feelings if anybody shoots at me. Them fellows are likely to do it, and me having a rifle in my hands, I won't be able to stop the temptation to fire back. As he spoke, the raiders fired. There was a crackling of rifles, little curls of blue smoke rose in the pass, and bullets struck on the frozen earth, while two made the snow fly from bushes by the side of the road. The sergeant raised his own rifle, longer of barrel than the average army weapon, and pulled the trigger. He had aimed at Skelly, but the leader swerved, and the man behind him rolled off his horse. The others, although slowing their speed a little, in order to be out of the range of that deadly rifle, continued to come. The pursuit at first seemed futile to Dick, because they would soon descend into Townsville's valley, and the raiders could not follow them into the midst of an entire regiment. But presently he saw their plan. The pass now widened out, with a few hundred yards of level space on either side of the road thickly covered with forest. The branches of the trees were bare, but the undergrowth was so dense that horsemen could be hidden in it. Bands of the raiders darted into the woods both to the right and left, and he knew that advancing on a straight line one or the other of the parties expected to catch the fugitives who must follow the curves of the road. The advantage of the pursuit was soon shown, as a shot from the right whistled by them. Red Blaze, quick as lightning, fired at the flash of the rifle. I don't know whether I hit him or not, he said judicially, but the chances are powerful good that I did. Still it looks as if they meant to hang on, and likely we can soon expect shots from the other side too. Then if they know the country as well as they appear to do, they'll have us clamped in a vice. As he spoke his eyes twinkled cheerfully out of his flaming countenance. You certainly seem to take it easy, said Dick. I take it easy, cause the jaws of that vice ain't going to clamp down. Being somewhat interested in a run for your life, you haven't noticed how dark it's getting up here on the heights, and how hard it's snowing. It's coming down a lot thicker than it was when we crossed the first time. It was true. Dick noticed now that the snow was pouring down, and that all the peaks and ridges were lost in the white whirlwind. I told you that I had been a traveler, said Red Blaze. I've been as far as fifty miles from Townsville, and I know all the country in every direction. Twenty miles from it inch by inch. Inside of five minutes the snowstorm will be on us full blast, and we won't be able to see more'n twenty yards away. And that crowd that's following won't be able to see either. And me knowing the ground inch by inch, I'll take you straight back to your regiment while they'll get lost in the storm. There was room now in the road for the three to ride abreast, and they kept close together. They heard once a shout behind them and saw the flash of a firearm in the white hurricane, but no bullet struck them, and they kept steadily on their course, Red Blaze directing with a sure instinct that comes of long use and habit. Heavier and heavier grew the snow. There was but little wind now, and it came straight down. It seemed to Dick that the whole earth was blotted out by the white fall. He and the sergeant resigned themselves completely to the guidance of Red Blaze, who never veered an inch from the right path. If I didn't know the way my horse would, he said, I'd just give him his head, and he'd take us straight to his warm stable in Townsville, and the two bundles of oats 
that I mean to give him. I reckon it was pretty smart of me, wasn't it, to order a snowstorm and have it come just when it was needed. Again the cheerful eyes twinkled in the flaming face. You're certainly a winner, said Dick, and you win for us all. The snow was now so deep in the pass they could not proceed at great speed, but they did the best they could, and as Red Blaze said, their best, though it might be somewhat slow, was certainly better than that of Skelly and his men. Dick believed, in fact, that the raiders had been compelled to abandon the pursuit. When they reached a lower level, where the snow was far less dense, they stopped and listened. The sergeant's ears had been trained to uncommon keenness by his life on the plains, and he could hear nothing but the sigh of the falling snow, nor could Petty, who had fine ears himself. They descended still further, and made another stop. It was snowing here also, but it was merely an ordinary fall, and they could get a long view back up the pass. They saw nothing there but earth and trees covered with snow. Looking in the other direction, they saw the sunshine gleaming for a moment on a roof in Townsville. We're all safe now, said Red Blaze, and we'll be with the soldiers in another half hour. But just you two remember that maybe the next time I couldn't call up a snowstorm to cover us and save our lives. Once is enough, said Dick, and Mr. Petty, Sergeant Whitley and I want to thank you. Mittened hands met buckskinned ones in the strong grasp of friendship. And now as they rode on, the whole village emerged into sight. There was the long train standing on the track, the smoke rising in spires from the neat houses, and then the figures of human beings. The fall of snow was light in the valley, and as soon as they reached the levels, the three proceeded at a gallop. Dick saw Colonel Newcomb standing by the train, and springing from his horse, he handed him the dispatch. The colonel opened it, and as he read, Dick saw the glow appear upon his face. "'Fire up,' he said to Camby, the engineer who stood near. "'We start at once.' The troops who were ready and waiting were hurried into the coaches, and the engine whistled for departure. End of chapter 4